The first town to see the sun rise each day is Gisborne, New Zealand. Well, Gisborne's most famous daughter is Kiri Takanawa, and she launched the world into the new millennium on January 1st, 2000, with a performance at dawn of Pokare Kare Ana, a Maori love song. Here's a clip from the broadcast, which was watched live by almost a billion people around the globe. Nearly as many people were captivated by Kiri Takanawa's performance two decades earlier at the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana Spencer. At that fairy tale event, she sang Let the Bright Seraphim and became a household name in the process, even to people without a clue about opera. wonderful, surprising story of Kiri Takanawa's rise from the remote seaside town of Gisborne to just about every majestic opera house and concert stage around the globe on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, perseverance, and this week, vibrato from the audio archives of the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adam this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. All you do is you breathe and you sing. Now it's how you breathe And how you sing on top of that is what you have to learn to do. But it's no more difficult than that. And that's all I do, is I breathe and I sing. Easy for her to say. Kiri Takanawa was born with that voice, that sumptuous voice. But nothing about her life hinted at the success that was to come of it. She was born in one of the most remote corners of the earth to a couple who were having an extramarital affair and gave her up for adoption. The parents who adopted her were entirely devoted to her. My mother was a very strong influence. My father just loved me, which was a rather nice combination. But my my, my mother was the driving force, and she was the 
she would teach me songs. She didn't know what she, you know how to do it, just sing along stuff. And um, she, she somehow had a vision. Uh, she said she had a vision. I'm not quite sure about that, but you know people do have these these ideas. And she woke up one day and she says, "I've seen you at Covent." She called it called it Convent Garden, but that I since learned it was Covent Garden. I've seen you at Covent Garden, and you're on the stage there. And I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." That was it. I went off fishing, most probably again. She loved to fish, though she did almost drown once when the boat she was in with her dad flipped over, trapping her underneath. But that didn't stop this most determined child. She kept right on fishing and swimming in the sea. And sometimes, only on her own terms, she sang. That's how she described her early life to classical music journalist Gail Eichenthal, who interviewed her for the Academy of Achievement in 2008 at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. She was 64 at the time and more than four decades into her storied career. Oh, gosh, that's a long way back. Um, Well, because we didn't have any television when I was growing up, we didn't have television for a very long time, um, we used to do little performances, or I used to do little performances, and I had a little stage in my my parents' house, and the curtains would come back and I'd get up and sing. But unfortunately, I would only sing when I felt like it, not when my mother felt like I should be singing. So I was always a bone of contention there. Come along, Kerry, come and sing. And I said, no, and I wouldn't sing. So I I was sort of rather sort of miffy about it even then, way back. I'd only sing when I felt like it. So I'd I'd stage my own little performances and, and sing for her. Her mom played the piano and would accompany her, and she had an aunt who was a coronet player. Still, nothing but her mother's clairvoyance suggested what was to come. So when did she realize she truly had a gift? Well, I didn't. I didn't realize it at all. But when she was 14, Takanawa's parents sent her to Auckland for singing lessons once a week, and they enrolled her in a Catholic high school for girls in Auckland where she joined the choir. She loved being part of that sea of voices, but still she had no aspirations to be an opera singer. It didn't really occur to her. No, I was. I mean, if you if you know anyone from New Zealand from Polynesian countries, you know they're very laid back. It's always you know, oh, it'll be all right tomorrow, it'll be fine, and it's all very happy, and no one no one stresses themselves out. And then suddenly you've got this this thing on your hands, which is a voice in your throat, and you you suddenly it's it's you know it's interesting, and other people are interested in you, and you suddenly you get on this sort of treadmill of um, go, and there's, there's no end to it. That treadmill would truly start to speed up when she was 21 and moved to England to study singing more formally. But even before that, there was a paid gig close to home, her first. I went to um, a school and I sang three or four songs and I was given a thing called two guineas. I think they still use guineas in horse trading but towards horse sales. So I was given two guineas to sing my three or four songs. And then I started singing at weddings and funerals and after, you know, at the reception of of, um, weddings. That's how how I was doing, I was earning my money to to pay for my clothes and um, my singing lessons to help my parents out. She remembers one night in particular when she tried singing at a nightclub. I went to a place, it was called The Colony, and I came in with my little songs and everything, and these people, of course, you know, they're well into that, really, really into their cups. I mean, it's well and well, I mean, all over the place. And here I'm evidently, and I'd forgotten what, what, it, what the impact was, was, I was singing Ave Maria. <laughs> so you can imagine, they're sort of all completely drunk, and they most probably thought, 
um, have I just died and, and, and I'm off to heaven because she's singing Ave Maria. So evidently it was quite surreal, that one too. But I sang my little Ave Maria and, you know, whatever. And you probably look like an angel as well. <laughs> I was dressed in white. <laughs> they were really drunk. All the while, she was trying to get through school in Auckland. It was a struggle. But she says that wasn't really her fault. The Catholic Girls High School where she was sent was the same school where her singing teacher worked. So at any time that she was free, they'd get the call, curious to come for singing lessons. So my singing, my, my ordinary um, education was constantly broken into by my singing teacher. I was never... It was never sort of, she, I had a definite time, she'd always pull me out of class. And now, if I look back on that, that was actually very wrong. And they should have put me into classes that was going to sort of advance my education along with fitting in with her, but it never happened like that. So I just went along with it as I did, and the school went along with it because, um, you know, after, after a while, you could see that something, something quite sort of extraordinary was happening. But still, she flunked out of school and went to work at nights as a receptionist and as a telephone operator so that she could study music by day, despite the exhaustion. Eventually, she started entering and winning every singing competition she could, and with those victories came scholarship money. Then the New Zealand government gave her a grant, and she was on her way to England. I always said that, you know, I never ever missed a green light. Because if I walk down the street, I'll never ever wait for a red light. I'll only take the green light. So <laughs> you can imagine how I'm walking. I'm sort of crisscrossing to get to the green light all the time. And that's been my sort of aim in life is to never miss an opportunity. In London, for the first time, she started learning to sing opera. In New Zealand, she'd seen and fallen in love with a couple of operas, Don Giovanni and Porgy and Bess, but it was still new for her voice until it became everything to her. At first, she was a mezzo-soprano. That's a soprano with a lower range who typically plays secondary roles. Interviewer Gail Eichenthal asked Carrie Takanawa how she made the leap to soprano. Well, I just don't think there was a leap. I think it just was a natural progression. I, I'd looked after my voice for such a long time and always sang within uh, the area I thought my voice could sing. Um, you know, where my, my, the scale of, of my voice. And then when I came to England, I thought it was England that did it or the air that did it, but in actual fact, it was just a natural progression. My voice just went up, and that was wonderful. She remembers the first inkling came when she was in class singing the part of Dora Bella in Cosi Fantuti. And uh, Richard Bonning, Joan Sutherland's husband, came to our college and gave a master class, which was absolutely wonderful. And I was so thrilled by this. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, just to work with this wonderful man. And he said, you're not a mezzo. And he looked at me and he said, you're a soprano. And I thought, oh, yeah, tell me another story. And I just continued it as I did. Then, of course, I found my wonderful singing teacher, Vera Rocha. And from that point on, I just started working on my voice very carefully. And it just went up. It just naturally went up. I never knew I had a top C or a top D or anything like that. And I mean, I, I hardly ever, ever sing them. But when I want them, hope, hopefully they're there.
What you're hearing is the recording of a private concert Kira Takanawa and the Los Angeles Philharmonic gave to Academy of Achievement delegates and dignitaries at the 2006 summit in Los Angeles, with John Williams conducting. I think we ought to listen to a little more of it. Coming back down to earth now to pick up with our chronology. And where were we? Right, England, 1970 or thereabouts. Kiri Takanawa was figuring out she was now a soprano. But the next thing you know, she was asked to come to the Royal Opera House at Covent Garden, where she sang the part of Xenia in Boris Gudinov and the part of a flower maiden in Parsifal. But the part that really fueled her stratospheric rise was Countess Rosina Almaviva in Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, a part she prepared for for an entire year. They call this Junior Principles, which is a nice title, actually. So I studied it. But the most amazing thing is that I sang Figaro in English. I learned it in English. They made me learn it in English. Then they sent me off to Santa Fe, New Mexico, to sing it in English. And of course, I sang with Frederica von Stade, her first carabino, my first countess. Then I came back to Covent Garden and went back into Italian. How's that? <laughs> well, I said my head was going, and then from that point on, I stayed at Covent Garden for five years. But the most interesting thing about it was I was paid 50 pounds a week, and that was my salary for the countess. And every role that I did for the next several years, I think my my uh, my. Wage was 100, got to possibly 100 pounds a week at the end of the five years. Can you imagine how much <laughs> now it would cost? <laughs> so 50 pounds a week for the counters, two countesses a week. And you know, I was pleased. I was actually pleased. I, I was not, it wasn't about um, how much money that I wasn't getting. It was how much I was learning. And, and I, I was more than pleased to do that. And I look back, that was my, my apprenticeship. That's what you did. It may have been an apprenticeship, but it was also a rocket ship. That debut in 1971 and the five years that followed changed everything for Kiri Takanawa. But she had no way of knowing that when she first stepped onto the stage as the Countess. No, no, not at all. No. I, I knew that things were working up to it, but you know, when you're in, the, in it, in the sort of mess that I always felt that the opera was in my mind, because there's the music, there's the coaching, there's the instruction, there's the language, there's the, the, the stage movements, the conductor, and then you've got everybody else coming, you've got agents, you've got singing teachers, you've got this whole world, a circus. I mean, it's like you're just, you feel as though your brain's going to break. You're wanted everywhere and you suddenly think, 
gosh, in his interviews and papers and newspapers and the Mets calling, Covent Garden is booking you again and then Glyndebourne suddenly wants you and, oh, and you'd, I think I'm just going to go crazy here. And I just went into my typical South Pacific Polynesian mode of just going, whew, and I just wouldn't take any notice after a while. I just sort of just let it all fly over me. That's the only way I could cope with it. She even managed to tune out the adulation of the critics and the way the fans went berserk when she'd sing Porgy Amor. She just stayed focused instead on her rituals of preparation. Well, I, I never ever believed in any, any accolades because I sort of thought, well, if my singing teacher says it's okay and the people who are really, really close to me, and there are only one or two close to me, if they say it's okay, then I wait for that you know, that sort of signal. But I wasn't really taken in by it and still haven't been taken in by it because accolades, they come and go, you know. Um, it's how you feel as yourself. But I do remember the preparation was every night that, and, and during the dress rehearsal that um, the pianist would come to my room and we'd go up, walk up two or three flights in, above the dressing room and I'd literally sing that aria four times through. I'd be, I'd, I'd have my costume on, I was all ready, and from that point of work, singing it through three or four times, very softly, never in full voice, I'd walk straight down to the stage, sit in position, and I was ready. It was just another time through by the time I got it on stage. It wasn't more important than the first one or the sixth one I was going to do, so how many times did I, you know, so I, it was just I was singing it and singing it and singing it and singing it. It's one of those arias that's one of the most, most difficult arias in the repertoire. I mean, it's, it sits horribly uh, for, the, for the singer because it's a long wait. You've got to act, wait out the first act. And you're listening to what's going on. Of course, you, you're getting more nervous. But there wasn't time to get nervous because I was too busy singing the aria through. So I had no time to, 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 to think about anything. And that's, that's what the whole thing is. It's when you're occupied, um, you just go on and do it. And that's how I did it, and continued to do that for many years, every time I did Figaro. Kiri Takanawa was always very careful with her voice, and that's largely why it was so beautifully preserved throughout her five decades as a performer. She gave her last concert in 2016. She sometimes turned down roles that were too taxing at the insistence of her voice coach, Vera Rocha. But Rocha wasn't the only one watching out for Kiri Takanawa. Well, a lovely story. I remember there were uh, two wonderful front of house gentlemen who opened the doors for the, the clients coming in for the performance. They were huge. I mean, they were the hugest men I've ever seen in their big Covent Garden red outfits with the big hat. And they would stand at the front door and I would slip through there and they, they'd let me come through the front of house rather than going through the stage door. And I've never really liked stage door very much because I've always been a bit scary. I've, I, think it's, I don't like going into a dark hole. And Anyway, they let me go through the front of house and I'd get a lecture 
every day I'd come through the front of house. Now, Kerry, you know that singer. No, you don't you end up like her. Now she did this and she did that, and, and this, this, these two fingers wagging at me. You watch it, you watch, and then they'd mention the singer's name, and of course it was somebody I really, really admired, and um, I'd get the lecture for years. Years and years and years. And I used to enjoy it. And I'd hear about the next singer coming through. Don't you be like her or I was to be like this one. We liked this one. She was fine. She was looking after her career. And so I get this lecture from the front of house men. It was fa fascinating. Because those are the people listening there all night. And they're every, they're every performance. And they're hearing a voice either, you know, going up or going down or degrading or, you know, having good nights and bad nights. And, and they would have their assessment the next morning and tell me about it. <laughs> Kiri Takanawa's mother also got to see her daughter on stage at Covent Garden, her vision finally a reality. But sadly, she died very soon after. I always thought of it because it was such a shock. I always thought of it, it was her mission. She got me where she wanted me, and that was the end of it. The lights went out. Someone just turned off the switch and said, right, you've done your job, now you're off. You're up with us now. And I always felt it was a bit like that. And I thought, she adopted me, to, for a mission. And I, and I think sometimes people in, in their lives, you suddenly see them, oh gosh, they completed that, and, and why did they die so soon? Well, that was their, that was their duty. That was their duty, and the, the reason for them being on this earth was like that, because my mother had a really tough time when she was young. She had come from a very, very uh, poor family. And um, they all, you know, they, they, this, was, this was something that she did that was a super thing that um, did a lot for New Zealand in lots of ways, because, you know, I am a Maori, and I'm very proud of that. I'm very, my, my country is, is very important to me, even though I've lived away from it for a very long time, but I've my finger on the button out there all the time. And um, I want to do what I can in the way that I can do it, which is helping young students and singers and um, for them to, to find their way in life, whatever it might be, but to inspire would be an achievement for me, to, to give somebody direction, to inspire them and to get them to a level that they never thought they could ever get to. That's why Kiri Takanawa started her own foundation in 2004, to do just that, provide financial support and career mentoring and master classes to the most promising and dedicated young singers from New Zealand, well, mostly from New Zealand. It's the driving force in her life now, and she cherishes it, she says, almost more than her own career. One of her protégés is a New Zealand baritone named Philip Rhodes, who made his debut a year ago at the Royal Opera at Covent Garden. And like Takanawa, he is Maori. Our interviewer, Gail Eichenthal, asked Takanawa whether she felt discriminated against growing up in the 1940s and 50s because of her Maori heritage. I wouldn't say there was discrimination, but there was certainly something that... Um that, I, that you were not allowed to speak um, anything other than English. Maori was not allowed to be spoken. It was not taught. It's not allowed to be spoken. And I remember in one time I, was, I went to a birthday party <laughs> and um, I wasn't invited and they sent me home. 
I was the only one who sent home. I was, I was the Maori girl. And um, that was the way it was. You know, my mother was devastated, absolutely devastated. She said, how could they do this to a little child? And once again, you see, it didn't really upset me because I, nothing really worried me. And it still doesn't. I, I think, you know, man's inhumanity to man worries me, but things like that, you know, that's what people did in, the, in those times. And, and I've, I'm sure they'd be ashamed of what they did because that would not happen. I don't look at people as being coloured or whatever. I only, look at the look, I only look at people if they're rude. And I think, gosh, you're awfully rude and look at you. you know, I wouldn't be very proud of that. But rudeness is something I, I disrespect I don't like. Kiri Takanawa once wrote a children's book of Maori myths, tales, and legends to honor her parents and share the oral tradition of her culture. The book is called Land of the Long White Cloud, and it got rave reviews when it came out. The New York Times critic said it was so unusual for a celebrity to write such an engaging first book that, quote, one suspects Maori fairies themselves must have helped her. The same could be said of her debut at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. Maori fairies are as likely an explanation as any. That debut came, well, by accident in 1974. She'd come to the Met on loan from Covent Garden, essentially, to begin preparing to take over for Teresa Stratus in the opera Otello. They weren't too pleased that I was coming to the Met. They said it was too soon. And um, I think there was a little bit of opposition there. But anyway, that was fine. I, I came. And um, I, I just, I was going there watching rehearsals, um, watching everything they did. And um, it just sort of happened that I, I went through the dress rehearsal, watched it, and thought, gosh, this is fairly amazing. And then went home, and that was it. And that, that was the end of it. But then they, they started, they just called me the next day, and they said, oh, we'd just like you to come in. I think there was two days or something. Let's, let's come in and just go through it again. So I went through it. And, and then they said, well, let's stage it. And then John Vickers came in one, one of the two other rehearsals and said, oh, let's go through the whole thing with John, which I did. And um, it was a horrible afternoon. I went home and it's starting to snow. And I thought, well, that's that. And then I woke up the next morning. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll just go shopping or something. And then I was going to go to the, the afternoon performance. And um, I had someone staying with me and the telephone rang. And I said, if it's the Met, tell them I've gone shopping or whatever it was. And she did. And it was the Met. And she hung up on them. I thought, damn it. I said, what did they want? Oh, they want you to call. I said, what? They called? And I thought, it seems like, you know, my antenna went up and I thought something's gone wrong. Anyway, I, said, I think my agent called immediately after that and said, I think you, you're going to have to get down there. Well, anyway, I sort of threw some clothes on and I didn't have a dressing gown or anything. So he went to the store, got something for me to wear in, in the dressing room. All hell went loose. I got in a taxi who came from Brooklyn, didn't know where the Met was. I said, but it's straight down this street here. I didn't know where the street was. I was up on 79 or something, and I thought, oh, you know, this is getting worse and worse. <laughs> and I, it was snowing, and it snowed all night, and, and you know, it, there was snow all on the road, and, and the guy was saying, I said, look, just stop here. That's the Met. If you ever need to know it again, there it is. And so I rushed across the square, or the plaza, straight through. I think I, you were able to go through the front door by that time, and, and I did. I just went like a mad thing through the front door, and everyone was there. Of course, it's, the, you know, once again, the circus, that is going on. And there's every man and his dog is, is there trying to give you information, and there's the director trying to do something, and the conductor's there, and, of course, Jimmy's there, and John Vickers is there, and they're all there, and you got to go. And to think, 
shut up and get out. And I just said, I just need time. So somehow people threw a wig on me and some makeup and we were on. <laughs> we were on the number 52 bus to heaven. So um, it was like that. It was just this absolute panic. And then I got through the first act and I thought, thank God. And you know, no one, no, none of my family, my singing teacher was going to be there in a few weeks to come see my first performance. And my husband, who was then, uh, was going to come and all my friends were going to come. And I couldn't get them because it was snowing and it was just, it was impossible. So I went on, the loneliest person in the world, and I did this performance and it just went crazy. And I thought, I think, I think this is what it's like to hit the jackpot. <laughs> it was just the most crazy day in my life. Her debut on Three Hours Notice, by the way, happened to occur on the one day a month when the Met nationally broadcast its matinee performance. So her voice was heard far beyond the walls of the Metropolitan Opera House. And lucky us, there's a recording of it. So imagine you're hearing this voice for the first time on February 9th, 1974. The New York Times reported that during her solo curtain call, the audience erupted into an ear-shattering uproar that, quote, was accompanied by cascading confetti sent down from the balcony by opera freaks who shredded their programs to bits in a spontaneous and supreme gesture of welcome. The critics fawned just as hard in the papers the next day. And then for two days after that, it just went sort of crazy. And I thought, I'm going to have to come down to earth soon. I'm just going to have to, you know, start being realistic. Were you uh, nervous? Was there any... There was no time for nerves. There was no, I was absolutely, I mean, absolutely in a panic. There was, the nerves was, I was past that. It was beyond that. I was in panic. But you knew that you had the role in your head? And... I, I, I think so. I mean, I was young and stupid. I was not even 30. And, and I, you know, when you're young, you, you're invincible. You can do anything you like. And I've suddenly thought back and I look at young people now, I think, God, you know, they're young. And, and I was young and, and you could do anything you liked. And I thought, I can handle this. I'm fine at all this. And I did. I handled it. Because most probably, when, then I had to wait about another month to go on for my real performance. And of course, I was more nervous then. So it was, it was a crazy time. It was the most exciting, I think one of the most exciting two or three days of my life. 
I mean, I wouldn't have changed a single moment in all of it. And then having someone like John Vickers singing next to you, I mean, that's it's amazing. It's a debut, I don't think. I think people have done debuts like that before, but I don't think anything is ext as extraordinary as that. For someone who least expected to go on at 11 o'clock in the morning, and I'm on at two, you know, that's was so far out of my, my zone, I was, I was not there. But I made it, I made it and I did it, and, I, and as I say, I didn't miss the green light. <laughs> a whole string of green lights followed. That's basically what happens in a career if you're lucky enough to have that sort of start. I mean, that's the sort of, you'd like it to go a little slower, of course. And, and as, as I would have done, I would have been happy that, you know, two years before, I'd had a little, you know, well, Covent Garden did it really, basically, but nothing is, is, is whiz-bang. I mean, I was sort of in a, a jumbo jet going faster than anybody else in the entire planet on that day. It was the most, I think, I look back and I think, you know, just a moment of that again would have been nice to sort of experience because, you know, when you're in it, it's just going too fast. But um, I could relive it sometimes, which was nice. Takanawa became best known during her career for singing the music of Strauss and of Mozart. They suited her voice, and she also seemed to specialize in playing countesses. There was just something noble and elegant about her presence. But according to Takanawa herself, that was smoke and mirrors. I, I like playing those parts, I really do, but I'm, I'm more, I think one, one is the opposite from what you really are, you, and, and I'm re a real tomboy. Um, I don't ever, I mean, you hardly ever see me in a dress unless it's on stage. I'm only wearing pants because you can go faster in pants. I've always found that, you know, the faster you can go, the more you can get out of trouble or get into whatever. But, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I go shooting. I, I shoot with a gun on a regular basis and um, I go fishing a lot and um, I go golfing. I do lots of things that I love to do, to do outdoors. So that's why I'm a countess in non-reality and a tomboy in reality. But this tomboy knows her way around Windsor Castle. She's performed for the Queen and for members of the royal family many times. None more famously, though, than at the wedding, as I mentioned earlier, of Prince Charles and Lady Di in 1981. The invitation she got is something she'll never forget. My agent rang me and he said, oh, Charlie wants you to sing at his, his wedding. And I said, Charlie who? <laughs> He said, Charles. I said, Charles who? Charles Windsor. I, I said, oh, I said, that Charles. <laughs> and they said, and you can't say a single word because, you know, if I'd told somebody, then it would have got out and all that sort of thing. So I, I just couldn't say a single word to anybody because of what got to the press. It would have got, you know, and, and they didn't, and everyone's trying to find out what was happening at the wedding and what her dress was like and who was going to be bridesmaid and who was going to be all this, that, and who was inv invited and all that sort of thing. So I wasn't allowed, and of course the music, no one would have been thinking about that, but then as we got close, of course, people would have been thinking who was going to be singing, and it was me. The singing was intimidating enough, but the procedures around the wedding were downright nerve-wracking. And then there was the dress. It was designed for her in Paris, bright, almost fluorescent yellow and pink, and was topped by a turquoise hat. Some remarked that she looked like a bird of paradise, but she rather liked it, and she's proud that it's now part of the permanent collection of a museum in New Zealand. Anyway, let's just say performing at Charles and Di's wedding was fraught. 
I suppose it wasn't quite as bad as the, the debut at the Met, but it was, it was getting close. It was, it was once again a, a huge melee of, um, of people and the right things to do and the wrong things to do and where you had to be and do not, there's no toilet, so be sure you know what you're doing. And, um, you know, and I thought, well, I have to drink. But the, I think if there had to be a downside of it, I did the silliest thing in my entire life. But I wanted to do it because I'd, I'd done it sort of the way I wanted to. I, I decided to do uh, Cosi and Don Giovanni side by side. One night would be Don Giovanni, one night would be Cosi Fantutti. Because it was already set in stone. You know, the, the, the productions were set in stone. I was booked to do it. Then the royal wedding came up. And I thought, oh my God, how am I going to get through this? One night off, one night be Cosi Fantotti, one night would be Don Giovanni, night off. And I did that four times and nearly killed myself because we all did it. We, we all said, there was a little bit of a pact amongst us, Tom Allen and I can't remember who the other cast, but we all decided to do these roles, two of them, for Covent Garden. It was like a Covent Garden fest. I think there was most probably flute, um, Don Giovanni, um, Cosi, and Figaro. I, I, I'm not sure if I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I did the Don Giovanni and the Cosi. I can't remember exactly. And in the middle of it, I did the Royal Wedding. And I thought, how dumb is this to have got myself to this stage that I've just actually wiped myself out. There's going to be no voice left. So I went and stayed up in London for two weeks in a hotel. And so I'd go and do the performance. I'd walk down back to the hotel, or it wasn't very far from Covent Garden. And I'd get in that bed and I'd sleep all day and, and, and I'd get up, get up for air, <laughs> go and have a meal and go back to bed. And I'd shut up for the whole two weeks and just stayed in bed and sang in bed, sang. And that was it. And I got to the royal wedding by chance because I think it was two days later. I can't remember the exact day, but what my schedule was, but then the, the royal wedding. And I thought, oh, God, I'll never do this again. Kiri Takanabu was nothing if not hardworking for 50 years. She had success beyond her wildest dreams, but it took a toll on her, and she described the life of an opera singer once as a lonely one. Yes, I think it's lonely because um, you either are there with very, very, very good friends, and they can't always be there in the right country at the right time for you, or you are with people who you only see on a, on a basic sort of, um, you know, they're just there for, for not the good reasons for you. I, I don't want to sort of go into that too much, but um, it's, it's lonely when you, get, you leave the operatic stage and you've been, you know, cheered and, and flowers have been given to you and then you go back to the hotel and all the flowers are dying and it's a very lonely hotel room. It's, there's nothing there. So you have to have a life, you have to make a life, whatever it might be, whether it be books or you sing in a choir or as I do, go fishing a lot, go golfing, go tennis, go... I mean, I took up tennis because it was a faster sport than golf because golf took a day, whereas tennis takes a couple of hours. Balancing her personal life with that big career was never easy. Her marriage, although happy for many years, ended in divorce, and she spent a lot of time away from her two children. Still, she says, she did her best. I, I, did, I did my very, very best as a parent. Um, and I think, if, if you say you succeeded as a parent, I think you're lying. Well, I could have given up the career, but um, I didn't. And, you know, do I regret that? Well, you know, what do you do? I mean, maybe I should have, but I didn't. And so I had this career. But I sometimes, in the darkest time when I regret a lot, I, 
I will stay in, in, in the dark part of the night when it's really black and I just see this stinking career took so much. Yet, it gave me so much. And the people she thanks most to this day for all that it did give her are her parents. Because I have to, uh, I really say that, um, and I don't want to go into too, deep, too deeply because sometimes it becomes a little bit emotional, but the reasons that I'm here today is because of the sacrifices of my parents. And I know how much they sacrificed. My father was a very hard worker and um, he didn't know what was happening to me. My mother didn't really know what was happening to me, but they sacrificed, and I can't tell you how much because it's, it would go into years and years of what they did do for me. And, and I look at my children and I say to them, you're here because of my father and my mother, not because of me. And it really, it really was, it was huge. And they've given me this amazing life and then I can't even thank them. So all I can do is, is help. And I, and I think in, in lots of ways with young students and I'm working with them right now here at the Met, that is my, I suppose, my little bit of payback, if you know what I mean. I, I, need, I need actually to sort of somehow thank everything. You know, the Met has been wonderful to me. Covent Garden was wonderful. Chicago, San Francisco, my own country. My own country helped me with uh, finances and scholarships and, you know, just the way they treat me and things like that. And I just have to thank so many people for the reasons why I'm here. Dame Kiri Takanawa retired from the stage in 2016, eight years after this interview was recorded at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. She is still busy running her foundation and helping all those young singers make their own green lights. I feel I'd be remiss if I closed out this episode without mentioning that Kiri Takanawa appeared on season four of Downton Abbey, playing the part of opera singer Nellie Melba. On the show, she sang Puccini's O Mio Babino Caro, but she also sang the same aria for the Academy of Achievement a few years earlier with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. So we're going to go out on that version. Revel in it. And one final note, please make sure to go listen to our episode about the great Jesse Norman, who passed away a week ago as I record these words. She had an extraordinary story of her own and the voice to match it. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is what it takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is funded oh so generously by the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. This week, we end with a standing ovation for them and for you. Thanks for listening. See, see.